Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 9. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dresser saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, Certainly not. Then he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. In the book of Revelation, John sees a scroll. The scroll is written on both sides, inside and out. It's the scroll of God's decree of salvation, his plan of gathering together his people throughout all the world and bringing in his kingdom and crushing the head of the serpent. And it's revealed when the scroll is open, but there's no one worthy to open the scroll. And then the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain, comes and is proven worthy to open the scroll. God's decree, his plan of salvation, the redemption of his people, the gathering together of the bride is only brought to pass and only revealed by the Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ himself. Christ alone is the groom. The bride belongs only to Christ. The vineyard is his. Christ is worthy because he was obedient unto death. He alone is true and righteous man and also true God. As God told David, uh, the uh, the son of David, the anointed one, God told him in Acts chapter, Psalm 2, he said, Ask of me and I will give you the heathen as your inheritance. Because of the obedience of Christ, Christ has received the inheritance, the church, the vineyard, the people of God, the bride. And so we must decrease and he must increase we know uh, in the book of acts uh, peter says him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of god you have taken by lawless hands have crucified and put to death so there's two sides two perspectives that we can look at the crucifixion of christ one perspective is from the eternal decree of god god determined it from before the foundation of the world as part of the plan of salvation the center of all of history everything is wrapped up in the cross of christ where he defeats death and the power of the devil and rises again the third day this parable looks at the events from the perspective of the wicked hands 
There was a motive for the Sanhedrin to put him to death. There was a motive for Pontius Pilate to issue the decree of death. They, of course, were not thinking of the eternal decree of God. They were doing what was expedient for them. And Jesus in this parable is exposing the motives of these religious leaders. The story is pretty straightforward. It's a guy that owns a vineyard. He goes away for a long time. He leases it. He doesn't give it away. He leases it to servants to watch over it, to tend it, and then to give him the fruit when the fruit time comes. He wants the produce from the vineyard. And so he sends his servants to collect the produce. And the vine dressers, the, least, the ones who are leasing the vineyard, beat them, kill them, refuse to bring the fruit. And then he sends the son. In the culture of the time, it would have been understood what it meant to have the son come to the vineyard. They would have automatically assumed that the owner of the vineyard was dead and the son was coming now to check out his inheritance. And so that's why they say, let's kill the son and then we can take the inheritance for ourselves. And that's the story. So first, let's look at the vineyard. Isaiah himself tells us who the vineyard is. He says, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. This is why the Pharisees actually understood this parable, because they knew the scripture. And the vineyard throughout all of scripture is the house of Israel, the church of God, the people of God. And God expected them to bring forth fruit. What's the fruit that God expected the house of Israel to bring forth? Once again, Isaiah tells us, justice, righteousness, Instead of justice and righteousness, when the Lord looked at his people, the leaders of his people, he found oppression crying out from the ground. He found destruction, adultery, fornication, abuse, murder, greed, covetousness. But the fruit that he desired was the fruit of righteousness and justice. Justice where there isn't one law for us and for them. Justice is not twisting the law around to make it advantageous for us at the expense of the widows and the outcasts and the orphans. But where everyone can find safety and peace and righteousness. It's all summarized in the law of God. What was the fruit that God looks for and still looks for in his people? To love God with your whole heart, your neighbor as yourself. To joyfully submit to your father and mother and all in authority over you. To live without hatred and thoughts of revenge and envy. To live joyfully with your wife all the days of your life. To be content with what you have. To speak the truth in love. To refuse to join in backbiting and slander and the destruction of the reputation of others through gossip. And to teach the people and to lead them in bringing forth the fruit, God raised up men and women and gave them extraordinary gifts. These were teachers, judges, mothers, fathers, kings, priests. There were prophets. There were Levites. Here's an interesting thing to note in the parable. Their position as leaders of the vineyard were given to them by God. The gifts that they had were given to them by God. They had the ability and the gifts to tend the vineyard. But leadership's a tricky thing. 
It's an addictive drug to a fallen heart. And you get put in a position by God himself and you tell people what to do. As we've seen over and over in the church, the positions of leadership are filled with those with the gifts of leadership. And with those gifts far too often comes abusive pride, domineering, a lust for power and control. And so we see the scandals being revealed almost daily in the news from those in places of power abusing the sheep. Power isn't a bad thing. As long as we remember that there's no power apart from God, he gives it to us for the good of the church and the good of the community. Everybody has power and they will be called to account for how they've used that power. Whether it's the power over their own bodies, the power over their children, or the power over uh, their communities. The power of words. When the leaders, when those with power forget that the vineyard isn't theirs, and when they seek to use that power to satisfy their own lusts and their own need for affirmation and adoration, they very quickly turn oppressive. Samuel warned about this when the nation of Israel wanted to turn away from following God and say, we want to be just like all the other nations. Appoint a king over us. A king sounds really good. But Samuel says, this is be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots to be his horsemen. Some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, bakers. He will take the best of your fields, the best of your vineyards, the best of your olive groves, and give them to his servants." He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to officers and servants. He will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king that you have chosen for yourself. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. When we look to our kings and our leaders to be our saviors, that's the behavior that we get. The primary problem in the vineyard of God were the kings and the priests and the Levites. You read through the prophets and this becomes very apparent. They were supposed to be caring for the vineyard, caring for the sheep, teaching them and providing them a place to bring forth that fruit. They were supposed to be keeping them safe and protecting them from the false gods of the heathen. Providing a safe place for them to worship Jehovah in peace. Teaching the instructions of God. Shepherding the people. And remember we're talking about kings and priests and prophets and Levites. And all those in positions of authority. But instead. The history of the kings. They drove them away from the temple. They enriched themselves. They multiplied wives to themselves. They abused the widows and the orphans. Like Eve in the Garden of Eden, they saw and they took whatever they pleased. And they used those positions given to them by God to demand unquestioning obedience. And so God sends the prophets to warn them. These are the servants that the owner of the vineyard sends. Ezekiel is a great example He says, thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. 
Shouldn't the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and you clothe yourselves with the wool and you slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, you have not healed those who are sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. And thus you have the difference between a godly shepherd and an abusive shepherd. And so the sheep are scattered because there was no shepherd. Ezekiel ends that passage saying that God himself will provide a shepherd. He says, even my servant David. This was hundreds of years after the death of David. The Messiah, the coming one, would be the true shepherd of the sheep. In the parable, the owner says, I'll send my son. Perhaps they will respect him. The purpose of the son coming is to gather fruit from the vineyard. Justice instead of oppression. Love instead of hatred. Joy instead of sorrow. Peace instead of constant war. Life instead of death. Jesus Christ would take the sword of death upon himself. He would take sickness and shame and guilt on himself. He would put it to death in his own body on the cross so that we might know that he took the curse away from me. And now I can approach God. And then when he ascended, follow this, this is beautiful. He pours out his spirit on the church. That's the promised water poured out on the parched vineyard. That water that would bring new life and the vines would grow and flourish because they would be grafted into the shepherd. So many figures of speech here. And all of it is given to show us the power of the son, the true owner of the vineyard. He is the only one that gives us life from the dead. He's the only one that waters the parched and dried soul. He's the one who pours out his spirit and gathers his sheep together. Mixing of all these metaphors. The interesting thing is it could have never been done by the law. All the law can do is beat you over the head with tables of stone. It can never bring life. Life flows only from one place. The fruit only comes from one place. The fruit can only grow if the vine is alive, and the vine can only be alive if it's planted in Christ. And so we hold to him. As Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. We hold to him by confessing our sins, confessing that he alone is our life, that he alone pours out his spirit. And as that spirit is poured out, we see a little bit clearer each day. A little more hope, a little more joy, a little more peace. Most of all, in this life, that fruit is a tremendous longing to see the groom face to face. The tremendous longing to be finally freed from this body of death. The wedding supper of the Lamb when we will be his and he will be ours forever. Until then, even though we're not home, we're still his and he is still ours. We're still his vineyard. We have in our souls now the beginning of eternal joy, which no one can take away from us. So let's talk a little bit about the inheritance. We know that the people of God are referred to as God's inheritance. God gives that inheritance to his beloved son, as Psalm 2 tells us. Ask of me and I will give you the heathen for your inheritance. 
Peter said that the pouring out of the Spirit was the fulfillment of that psalm. That's what's happening today throughout the world. The Son is asking the Father, and the Father is pouring out the Spirit on the inheritance and gathering Christ's inheritance together. That's what the church is, the inheritance of Jesus Christ. The problem is that plan of salvation always gets in the way of those who love power. For there are always going to be those who love power over other people. They're the kind of people that love to tell you how far you're allowed to walk on the Sabbath day. Or how much and how often you need to spank your kids and whether or not you're allowed to work at home or not. Whether your wife is allowed to get a job or not and how to homeschool and what the curriculum is supposed to be and what you're supposed to study. And what books you're allowed to read and which books are supposed to be boycotted. They're the ones who will explain in great detail how the magic in Harry Potter will cause you to be demon possessed. But the magic in Tolkien is redemptive and why that's the case. They'll tell you how the backbeat is the rhythm of the devil and will open the door to African voodoo music, which is why you can't listen to the Eagles or Fleetwood Mac, but somehow you two in Kansas are okay. And yes, I've heard all of these my whole life. They're the ones that will tell you how much mint you have to tithe and how to wash your hands properly to get rid of the demons. They'll explain it all to you in great detail. The Pharisees of Jesus' day had 612 different rules, and they enforced them all. This power over people takes various disguises. One of the big disguises it takes in our day, which is a complicated subject, but I want you to think about it, is this whole idea of Christian worldview. It is true that when you become a believer, you look at the world a little bit different than everybody else. That's true. And yet, the way we view Christian worldview and have my whole life is that there are certain people who will tell you what the Christian view of economy, of health care, of politics, of law, of everything. And they have the Christian worldview for everything. And they will enforce that. And if you don't fall in line, they will beat you and cast you out of the vineyard quicker than anything. They don't want you to know the shepherd. They don't want you to know the son. They don't want you to know the owner of the vineyard. And they don't want you to trust the Holy Spirit that the son pours out upon your heart. Because they want the inheritance for themselves. God gave us ten commandments and he added no more. But they will give you plenty of rules. Because they want the inheritance for themselves. They, just like the leaders of every age, have determined that the best way to have power over people is to stoke their fear and then provide the solution. It works in every age. It worked in Christ's day. They made people afraid. They taught that if we aren't diligent and separate ourselves from sinners and keep the Sabbath day the right way, then God will punish us. God will never bless us. God will take away our place and our nation. And so today they will tell you sinners are taking over everything. We have to put a stop to it. The whole world's going to pot. And they've said that every age for the last... Uh, when did Seneca leave? I think that's the earliest one was Seneca, the Roman philosopher that said the world's going to pot. Young people today have no idea about how to honor their parents. 
was about 2,500 years ago? Every age. Because then they can set up conferences, basic youth conflicts, and they can tell you how to fix it. Sinners are taken over. We have to put a stop to it. It's so seductive because it's designed or it's disguised as a zeal for righteousness. But underneath it all, what they really want is the inheritance for themselves. They want the bride of Christ. They want power over the church. They want the greetings and the marketplaces and the fine robes and the power and the privilege and the prestige that comes with it. Or in our day, they want the invitations to the best conferences. They want the best book deals. They want the seat on the platform. In so many of these large, large churches, the mega pastor stands at the pulpit, and then behind him you see the people. Those are the approved ones, the chosen ones, the ones who don't rock the boat, who don't speak up. They're allowed to sit on the platform. And everyone in the congregation sees them and goes, this is the appropriate behavior. What they really want is power over God's inheritance. So in Jesus' day, when he comes to get the fruit, they knew he needed to go. For those who want the inheritance for themselves will never tolerate the proclamation of the gospel. Martin Luther found that out in 1517. There are many who are finding that out today. They will never tolerate the kingship of Christ alone. They don't mind using the name of Christ to build their own kingdom, but they don't know what it means that he must increase and we must decrease. To conclude, the church is the bride of Christ, not the institution. The institution has its place. Throughout history, though, we see the institutions come and go. The visible gathering of the saints is important, but institutions come and go. We boast in the RCOS that we've been around since 1741, which means that there were 1,741 years before where the church was still active, still alive, still bringing forth fruit, Institutions come and go. But each of you, Christ knows by name. Each of you is greatly loved by the owner of the vineyard. He came to earth, he went to the cross, he suffered and died for you by name. This is the beauty of election. Don't forget this. The doctrine of election is never given to us so that we can win arguments with people at Starbucks. The doctrine of election is given to us so that we might know how deeply loved we are of God who knew us by name from before the foundation of the world. But because we are his and he is ours, And because we long for him and because we feel that loss in our soul that we're not back home yet, we are vulnerable to charlatans. To use an example, suppose you're a woman engaged to be married. You love your husband, but you have doubts as to whether or not you're good enough for him. You have doubts whether you're pleasing enough or proper enough. And so you spend your money on books and on experts and on makeup and clothes and work hard to try to make yourself worthy of his love. But all he wants for you is for you to know how much you are loved 
and to just rest and be at peace in his love. For he's already provided everything. Once we understand what is the width and length and depth and height of the love of Christ, we're no longer vulnerable to charlatans who will tell us how to be loved. Like John the Baptist, he rejoiced to see the church following after Christ, even if it meant they left him. His joy was to see the son come into his vineyard, to see the groom fetch his bride. But in his day, just like in our day, many of the leaders of the church, those who were appointed by God to protect and guard the bride, instead wanted the bride for themselves. So they sought to kill the son and take the inheritance, for they would not take a backseat to anyone. And thus they fulfilled the prophecy about the cornerstone. I think I may have to talk about the cornerstone more next week. I don't want to rush through that. But the idea of this, it's interesting to note this. Jesus told them pointedly, and they understood it, that they were planning on killing the son and taking the inheritance for themselves. And this made them so angry that they planned to kill the son and take the inheritance for themselves. I've seen that repeat so often where I will accuse someone of being a bully over the people of God and to prove that they're not, they bully the people of God. By the end of the week, the Sanhedrin will have succeeded in putting him to death and they thought they'd won. They thought they saved their place and their nation, but instead the cornerstone crushed them. Within just a few years, the Roman army would come and take away their place and their nation. The fear of the wicked will come upon them. But when they cast him out and crucified him as a criminal, as an unclean thing, a defiling object in the midst of the camp, they only did that which the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God had determined that they would do from before the foundation of the world. In that process, the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, purchased for himself his inheritance, his people, his bride. The rejected cornerstone became the head of the corner. And the vineyard of Christ prospers. The Spirit was poured out because of the work of Christ. The church grew in numbers, in grace. You can see in the book of Acts, it's spreading throughout the whole world. But from the very beginning, including today, the church is still plagued by those who are puffed up with their own pride, who use the people of God to build their own platforms. And those with the pitchforks and the torches often seem to win the victory. And yet the gates of hell will never prevail against the church of God. For we are his bride and he is the groom. He is the cornerstone and we are the building. So we can abide in him, trust in him and his spirit, cling to him and his promises. And we will find rest for our souls and bring forth much fruit. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are our God and we are your people and the sheep of your pasture. Guide and direct our steps. Fill us with your spirit that we might bring forth much fruit, love and joy and peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. There is a great shortage of those qualities, of that fruit in the vineyard. And so, Father, how we long for that. So fill us with that spirit in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. <clears throat>